Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to investigate how to hit the business bullseye with your cyber initiatives. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. When I say steady on target, I'm referring to whether or not your cyber program aligns with your organization's business objectives. Now, this is a really important concept because if cyber doesn't align with the business, then the business will view cyber at best as a cost center and at worst as a mission blocker and something to be minimized or even defeated. The Poneman Institute published a white paper sponsored by Logarithm entitled Security in the C-Suite, Making Security Priorities Business Priorities. Now, they surveyed over 1,400 cybersecurity professionals, of which nearly 250 were CISOs. And according to their research, only 7% of the respondents reported directly to the CEO, although 60% say they should. Now, on average, a security leader is also three levels away from the CEO. In addition, 63% of respondents are not briefing their board of directors, and more than a third of those that get a chance to do so only have the opportunity after an incident. Yet, the CISO is on the hook 51% of the time when a company experiences a cyber attack. And when a data breach occurred, that number went up to 55%. This kind of seems to be a matter of accountability without authority. Now, reading on, only 46% said senior leadership had confidence that the cybersecurity leader understands the business goals. Because of these disconnects, it really is a challenge as a CISO to make a meaningful input toward directing business objectives, except in times of distress. And <laughs> then job one is making sure you still have a job. 63% report their budget is insufficient and in investing in the right technologies. 53% state that their senior leadership doesn't even understand their role. 51% lack executive support and 45% lack authority to execute the IT strategy for security. Now, with these dismal results, it would seem to be a Sisyphean task for the CISO to align cyber with business objectives. Yet, there are ways to do so. Now, our first step is to understand the concept of business value. Now, according to Scrum Incorporated, quote, business value exists at the intersection of what the market wants, what the team can actually implement, and what it is passionate about. Now, note that this includes, but it's not limited to, economic value. A company may want to make perhaps an impact or achieve some social good, and those are worthwhile objectives. But what's common across nearly every organization is a requirement to generate cash flow. So let's look at how the business makes money. Infotech Research Group produces some high-quality blueprints on building a business-aligned IT strategy, and we have a link to that in our show notes. In Infotech's content, they call out four key sources of business value. Profit generation, cost reduction, service enablement, and customer and market reach. Now let's look at how cyber can align security activities to support these business values. Number one, profit generation. 
Quote, the revenue generated from a business capability with a product that is enabled with modern technologies. Okay. The truth is, cyber doesn't make money, <laughs> so it's kind of hard for cyber to be a profit generator. Usually, that role falls exclusively to the sales team. However, cyber can perform risk assessments of the applications used by marketing and the IT systems that customers use. You can identify places where these systems could be vulnerable to spoofing, tampering, repudiation attacks, information disclosure, denial of service, or even elevation of privilege. Those terms sound familiar. This is commonly known as a threat model called STRIDE, S-T-R-I-D-E, developed at Microsoft. Remember, if key business systems like a customer resource management solution are down, then it's harder to make sales profits. Number two, cost reduction. Quote, the cost reduction when performing business capabilities with a product that is enabled with modern technologies. Okay. Cost reduction is another area where cyber can help the organization. Let's say that there's an IT system that's older and harder to maintain. You know, the one that still runs on a mainframe or is written in COBOL. These systems are probably slow, have numerous vulnerabilities, and are really hard to maintain. So you go to the IT system owner and we discuss the total cost of ownership. Now, what are the costs to develop and administer the tool? What are the hosting costs to run the server? And what are the software? software and hardware licensing costs. Now, if you can add up all three of these, you might just see what the total cost of ownership for a system is, and it may be unacceptably high. Let's just say this system had three maintainers and a fully burdened rate for these folks with labor and overhead and stuff is $200,000 each. Not unreasonable, by the way. It's about 600,000 bucks. Now the hosting costs 25,000 and maybe there's licensing costs at 25,000. So your total cost of ownership per year, $650,000. All right. Now the team believes that if the system were rewritten in a low code, no code IT environment like Microsoft Power Apps or AWS Lambda, the development team could be reduced to two people. Well, not that we fire somebody, but we can assign them someplace else, of course. Licensing costs, they go away. Now hosting drops maybe 10000 a year. So thus, the new total ownership costs would go down to about 410000 per year from 650000 This savings at 240 k per year means that in just under three years, the organization would have a positive return on investment by replacing this tool. So you and the IT owner go to the CIO and request funding to improve a product while also enhancing security. Now you reduce your tax service by eliminating the related security issues and the business and CIO save money for the organization. That's a win-win for cost reduction. Number three is service enablement. Quote, the productivity and efficiency gains of internal business operations from products and capabilities enhanced with modern technologies. Let's look at how cyber can help service enablement. The business always wants to do something to improve efficiency. Let's say you've got existing customers that the company believes that you can upsell with additional parts or services. So the organization hires data scientists who create new machine learning algorithms that identify highly correlated parts to those that might have been previously sold. They then use this new information to provide a recommendation engine that helps with the upsell. Now, 
As a cyber executive, you should look at how customer data is being protected. For example, traditionally, the data might be locked down into a database with restricted user groups and controls to prevent the data from leaving the company. But with this data science initiative, maybe bulk customer data is just sitting on the laptops of data scientists while they write custom queries. See, understanding places where data can be lost or stolen when new services are created or enabled is a key way to safeguard customer data. Now, imagine the story you can tell the CFO. When the cyber organization, the data scientists say, look how we identified ways to upsell parts and services leading to such and such an increase in revenue. You can also say we ensure this approach met all of our security standards. And that's another win-win. Number four, customer and market reach. Quote, the improved reach and insights of the business in existing or new markets. You might find your organization trying to reach new customers in California, Europe, or even China. Well, each of these special places come with their own data protection laws and regulations. So ensuring your organization can meet regulatory oversight requirements, such as California's Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, or China's Personal Information Protection Law, PIPL. Those can enable the business to create new opportunities. Now, in today's complex environment, expanding into a new market often requires coordination with legal and compliance to ensure that information is handled in accordance with national or regional directives. By being able to articulate the type of information involved and the locations of collection, storage, and use, you can add significant value to those conversations. I mean, there's other ways to add business value as well. I think I shared this with you before. Back in February of 2020, my chief operating officer came to me and said, hey, G-Mark, I need a pandemic response plan just in case. Well, I just completed our disaster recovery plan. And they pretty much just went through and replaced disaster with pandemic because the disaster recovery plan included things such as what if there's a flood or a major storm or there's a strike or some civil unrest or the building's unoccupied. How would you get the business to keep going if nobody could get to work? Isn't that really what the pandemic was? Well, it turned out that a couple weeks later, we actually went live, and for 20 months, the company operations plan came from the IT security plan that was written by the CISO for disaster recovery. So sometimes the work that you do can have a significant reach throughout the organization, and that helps a lot. Now, my desire is, is that uh, if you think about how to align your security initiatives with the business, you're going to need some sort of formula for execution, right? Now, in addition to aligning with business values, there's something we call the four disciplines of execution. And this comes from Franklin Covey that we view as a repeatable formula for high-performance success with the business. And the four disciplines are to focus on the wildly important, act on the lead measures, keep a compelling scoreboard, and create a cadence of accountability. Let's look at each one of those in turn. To focus on the wildly important, you narrow your focus as an executive. See, an error we often make is to select too many objectives, which dilutes our ability to achieve excellence in any one of them. Sometimes less is more. 
I know this seems counterintuitive. Why would a hard-charging, upwardly mobile executive like yourself try to do less? And the answer has to do with focus. When you choose a wildly important goal, which, by the way, is a trademark, uh, or WIG, W-I-G, also a registered trademark from Franklin Covey. So I got that out of the way. You pick an important objective that would not happen unless it had special attention. Now, don't pick simple items like execute the budget fully or improve fishing scores. That's just not wild enough. What you want is something exceptional that'll demonstrate true business value. And you start with your current state, define your future vision and a deadline, and then you can build a roadmap to get you there. And that focus will help you and your team succeed. So number two is you want to act on your lead measures. Now, measures usually come in two forms, lagging and leading. Now, a lagging measure or an indicator shows whether or not you're making progress towards your goal. But they're things that have already happened. The number of breaches, compliance scores, audit results, all of these are things that you don't know in advance. They're a result of your actions already taken. Now, it doesn't mean they're not important because they're visible signs of progress. For example, weight loss is a lagging indicator. It can't instantly change your weight, but if you do the right activities, you'll see the results eventually. And that introduces the concept of a leading measure, activities that help you progress toward your wildly important goal. For example, if your goal is to lose weight and get in shape, well, diet and exercise are your leading measures. These are the leading measures. You track those, and if you do them consistency, you'll make progress, and then you'll see the results in your lagging measures. However, there's a trap that lagging measures are much easier to observe. They're pretty much passive at this point, whereas leading measures often require consistent effort. And what you want to do is find the activities that move you toward your wildly important goal and then execute on those. Now, in terms of cybersecurity, we can think about vulnerability reduction. For example, the lag may be the number of vulnerabilities or the time it takes for vulnerabilities to be remediated from your team. Now, while getting to the goal of patching with a certain amount of time or having zero vulnerabilities over 30 days old is key, you can look at the activities that contribute to that success. For example, what percent of developer teams are having biweekly meetings to discuss patching vulnerabilities? What percent of teams have DevSecOps pipelines, which show the number of vulnerabilities in the developer's GitHub repository? What percentage of change approvals had clean scans before making production changes? What percentage of developers have gone through a secure developer training class? You see, each of these are things that security organizations use as a method to improve vulnerability reduction. The third discipline is keeping a compelling scoreboard. Now think about it. Do you play differently when you're keeping score versus when you're not? I mean, most people bring out their A game when they know that someone's tracking their progress. Having lead and lag measures, they're all well and good, but they don't always motivate people in real time. I mean, playing darts in the dark isn't much fun. They get boring pretty quickly. Someone said, yeah, yesterday, here is what your score was. Oh, I want to see how I'm doing, right? So you keep your people at their best performance by engaging them emotionally. Now, how do you do that? Get people engaged. The highest level of engagement occurs when everyone knows the score. Build a scoreboard for your players. 
not for the boss. Well, yeah, boss, you can have one. But if your team can see that the changes in their actions can make visible changes in their scorecard, they're going to be a lot more motivated to focus on those activities. And if you design it wisely so that it influences the lead measures, pretty soon you'll see the results in the lag measures and know that you have a winning combination. So these first three disciplines are basically a formula for creating a game that your people can win. Now, the last discipline is how we play that game. That fourth discipline is to create a cadence of accountability. And this means meet regularly and repeatedly with your team with a focus on your wildly important goal. Make it be short, 15, 20 minutes, and probably weekly. But during that time, make sure team members hold themselves and each other accountable to the commitments they've made. You can go around the room and have each person state whether I met last week's commitments by doing what I was supposed to do, how my commitments move the leader lag measures on the scoreboard, and the commitments I am making for the coming week. Now, when you allow people to make their own commitments, they're much more likely to be motivated to deliver on their promise to themselves and their teammates. Orders from the boss don't generate this type of internal motivation. Now you've gone from professional performance to personal commitment. And when your team sees that their actions are contributing and having a direct impact on the goal, you can celebrate that as a win. And as any sports fan knows, nothing makes you feel better than when you're on a winning team or rooting for one. Now think about this from a cyber perspective. Do you have daily stand-ups where information security officers can talk about what they're doing to help drive vulnerability reduction? One security officer might say that they're putting together a list of recommendations on what are the top five vulnerability IDs that account for the largest percentage of vulns across the organization. Now, the information security officer is then going to provide links to the technical resources on how to patch that particular vulnerability. This will ultimately be crafted in email, sent to the dev teams and their managers. And afterwards, the ISO works with the developers to identify target remediation dates, track to see if those vulnerabilities are patched within those timeframes. And these types of daily tasks can be reported in morning standups to create a winning game of reduction of risk from software vulnerabilities. So let's summarize what we've covered today. We discuss the importance of tying cyber activities to important business values. And we listed four of them, profit generation, cost reduction, service enablement, and customer and market outreach. And then to get that done, we explored Franklin Covey's four disciplines of execution, focusing on the wildly important, acting on the lead measures, keeping a compelling scoreboard, and creating a cadence of accountability. You should now be better equipped to align your security efforts with your organization's overall strategic direction. And by executing on this, while motivating your team to achieve these goals, I think you'll see a measurable improvement in your political capital and career potential as well. Now, before we wrap up today's lesson, Let's take a look at today's Monday morning email. As you may recall from a previous episode, that we're introducing a new segment of our show to engage with you, the listeners. So if you have a question that you've been wanting to ask CISO Tradecraft, now's your chance. You can do that by going to our website, CISO Tradecraft, and leaving a comment, reply to any of our posts on LinkedIn, or email me at gmark at cisotradecraft.com.
Today's question comes from one of our regular listeners named Bryce, and he asks, how do you handle situations where a vendor to your company gets compromised? Hmm. This is a very timely question, so let's look at a current example. On the 28th of February, Toyota issued a brief press release that stated, quote, Due to a system failure at a domestic supplier, Kojima Industries Corporation, we have decided to suspend the operation of 28 lines at 14 plants in Japan on Tuesday, March 1st, both first and second shifts. We apologize to our relevant suppliers and customers for any inconveniences may cause. We will also continue to work with our suppliers in strengthening the supply chain and make every effort to deliver vehicles to our customers as soon as possible. Holy mackerel. Okay, Kojima Industries is an 84-year-old manufacturer of plastic parts and electronic components, and they have sales of 174 billion yen. This is a serious company. And a critical server had been infected with malware, and Kojima couldn't deliver their parts. And because Toyota uses just-in-time inventory, it doesn't stockpile components at its plants. Thus, when a key supplier could not deliver critical parts, the assembly lines had to be shut down. Now let's pretend that we're in Toyota's situation. Think about how she respond. Well, there's a few things you immediately want to know. First, <clears throat> what sensitive data does your company send to the company, which is now considered compromised? Is there a place where you can look this up, or do you have to ask the development team? Now, once you find out this aspect, you need to quickly loop in your legal department in case you have to declare a breach of customer data. Yeah, please remember this step. Data hasn't been lost, or at least hasn't been confirmed, but it has the potential of being lost. So you need to communicate that clearly with your legal advisors. The second thing you want to do is understand all the network connections between your company and the compromised vendor. For example, do you have any network connections where your IT systems send sensitive data to their systems or vice versa? And if so, these connections can be a way for bad actors to move laterally from the supplier to your company's network. You should also really increase the scrutiny of inspecting emails from your supplier. Remember, these bad actors could also use their access to send malicious emails to your company. So you should view all emails from this company as suspect until the eradication of the bad actor has been completed. Now, once you get a handle on data sharing and network connectivity, you need to craft a written message to the supplier and ask them to confirm if the systems and data that host your company's data were part of the data compromise. Now, in the best case, it wasn't. And hopefully you can move on with your life. However, if not, then you have to go full incident response mode, work with your legal counsel on how best to proceed, meet all your legal and regulatory reporting requirements within your specific timeframes. Now, if you're looking for more guidance on incident response, please check out two of our previous episodes. Number 32, Brace for Incident with Brian Murphy, and episode 33, 10 Steps to Cyber Incident Response Playbooks. Now, one final thought on this question. One really good proactive measure you can do is to centralize third-party connections. For example, instead of giving direct systems connectivity from your system to a vendor, it would be better practice to send all of your external data through an API gateway to a third party. Now, this allows for some really good benefits. Data has to follow a specific format to traverse the API, which limits malware from spreading because it 
it's unlikely a malicious script can meet the API call. Second, if you need to turn off access for any reason, you have a centralized system to turn off the data for multiple vendors. You don't have to chase down a dev team, get a network diagram, look for access, have meetings, figure out what needs to be disabled, then go look for that person who can turn it off. You simply find the API gateway, which contains a list of all the external vendors and API calls, and pull the plug. Now, using an API gateway approach can also allow even more security. Because usually when you give a server access over a port like 443, it can scan for all services utilizing that port. However, if you use an API gateway approach, you can further limit API sharing. You can expose one API to one vendor and allow the other vendors to see different APIs. And this further provides the least privilege with data sharing. Well, Bryce, thanks again for this interesting question. And we invite more listeners to ask questions for future episodes of the show. Remember, we'd love to feature your question on Monday morning email on the next episode of CISO Tradecraft. So please send me a comment by going to CISOTradecraft.com or, as I said, respond to our LinkedIn posts or send me an email at gmark at CISOTradecraft.com. This is G. Mark Hardy, and thank you again for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, stay safe.